And from the perspective of light, we started week one in the beginning. God created. We talked about how there was nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing more to that sentence. I don't know why I like dot, dot, dotted that. It was just there was nothing. In the beginning, there was nothing, right? And then God says, let there be. Oh, my goodness. Come on, y'all. It's the middle of the month. We've been through this three times now. In the beginning, God said, let there be. Light, right? He said, let there be light. And there was light. And light set was separate from the darkness. And then just a little bit later, he said, let us make man in our own image, right? And he placed man and woman in the light. Come on. If I go like this, I'm probably looking for light, right? In the light. Man and woman was meant to be separate from the darkness. But that's not our reality, is it? That's not our reality. Why? Week two, we talked about how we have twisted the light just a little bit. You know how it goes. You know the light bulbs you have at home. And if you touch it while it's on and twist it just a little bit, just a tiny bit, it doesn't even have to be that much, just the tiniest little bit, what happens? Darkness comes in, right? The light's not there. Darkness has entered our world because we have twisted the light just a little bit. We have changed or adapted or added to what God has said just enough to let darkness creep into our world. And so now we deal with the fact that darkness has disrupted our peace, the peace that God meant for us to experience from day one. But the darkness has disrupted that because we've twisted the light just the tiniest little bit. And now this week, this week as we desperately look for joy, I want to propose and speak to our reality that in many circumstances, in many ways in our life and in our world, we have and we are actively running away from the light if you have your Bibles with, with you, I encourage you to turn to the book of Judges. Now, I know you Bible thumpers heard me say Judges, and you thought, oh, Lord, yep, 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 we're doing it. Go into the book of Judges. I actually want you to turn to the end, so you might as well go to the book of Ruth and then just turn one page back, right? Um, we're going to go to the book of Judges. We're going to the 21st chapter, which is the last chapter. We're going to the 25th verse which is the last verse. And yeah, yeah, that's all we got for today. This is Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It summarizes the book by saying this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Guys, there's only two sentences. What's wrong with you? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When you read the book of Judges, when you read the book of Judges, when you get specifically to around the 17th chapter, from chapter 17 to 21, as the, as the book closes with some wild stories, there is a centerpiece. There is a phrase that is repeated over and over and over again. And that phrase 
is this one. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's repeated over and over. And you know exactly what I'm about to say with this. The dangers of casual reading is that we will overlook this repetition. But if you read the book of Judges and you see it over and over and over, the author did not lose their train of thought. The author did not fail their literature course. Well, I mean, maybe they did, but that's not the relevant thing right here, right? It is there on purpose to communicate something. Whenever you see repetition in scripture, we are tempted to look over and be like, man, they, it just said that. It just said that. Why? Like, who wrote this? Who, who proofed this? Who mass published this? What's up, Tyndale? Why we like got these repetitive? If it's repetitive, it's there on purpose. And this phrase in the book of Judges is there on purpose. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. When the text says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, it's not as if there was a king that was absent, right? It's not as if there was a king that was absent. It's not that the king was on the golf course. It's not that the king was on vacation. It's not that the king had gone on another journey to do something else for a minute and then was coming right back. It's not that the king had died and we hadn't filled that position yet. It wasn't like that, right? The brief history of Israel shows us that at creation, there's light. There's made in our image. There's all that, right? Then there's the fall. There's the twisting of what God of what God had said, there's entered darkness, sin in our lives, and then there's a whole lot of really crazy stuff that just pops off for the rest of the Old Testament until you get to this point, right? That's a really good way of summarizing it. I promise you, just a whole lot of really crazy stuff. It pops off. And what you'll find is that God was constantly trying to invite his people back into a committed relationship with him. And what you'll find is that God was constantly trying to find a way to make his people one with him again. To, I don't know, say, bring them into the light. So God sends to Moses and to others this, this thing that is called the law. Now, I know some of you are in here, because you've been here for a while, I know you well enough to know that you're just the tiniest bit like me. And when you hear something like the law, that just bit of anti-authority spirit within you just rises up. And you're like, oh, heck no. No, no, no. I'm not talking about that law. I'm talking about the guiding principles of how we be in the light with God. That's more or less what we need to understand by the law. These are more or less the guiding principles given to a specific culture, to a specific time period on ways that they could be faithful to being in the light. And up to this point, the Old Testament is filled with stories of how Israel swore up and down they would be faithful, swore up and down that they would not only observe but uphold the law. And they don't. Right? They don't. And by this time, God had made good on so much of his covenant, of his side of the agreement. He had even given them land, even though they had yet to hold up their end of the bargain. He said, I'm going to give you a big part of this promise, which is a whole lot of land. 
and to make sure that the people of this land stayed mindful of their relationship to God, to make sure that the people of this land would be able to observe and uphold the law, God would appoint leaders. He called them judges, not like the ones we see in the courtrooms, but like ones that you would see on the real battlegrounds that would lead people in the spiritual things of God. But when you read the book of Judges, when you go back and you read chapters 1 through 21, the story will overall communicate to you the complete and utter failure of the people of Israel to hold up their committed relationship to God. This is a book that people love to go to, to talk about, see, Scripture's wild. The God of the Old Testament is wild. He's so angry. Nah. People... We're doing these things in the name of God. But that doesn't mean that God's character led them to do that. God had put in place principles and systems to help the people of Israel in their time, in their culture, be children of the light. Meanwhile, other nations had kings. Israel was supposed to have God. Other nations had kings. And the problem with the way that their system was set up in other nations, and I know that this is difficult for us to even possibly fathom how this could work, but kings would be able to rule by the favor of their own opinion and political viewpoints. And they could be corrupted and skewed by whatever way of thinking would woo the people enough to do and follow the king's agenda. I know it's impossible to think how that could be true. Two giggles in the back say that you understand what I'm saying, right? I know it's difficult, but that was the reality of what would happen when we followed kings. So when the text says there was no king, when the text says there was no king in Israel over and over, it's not as if there was an absence of a king. It's that, it's that there was supposed to be no one other than God as the guiding principle and system to being children of the light. When the text says there was no king in Israel over and over, it should draw our attention to the fact that God had principles and systems in place for the betterment of the people of Israel. But the people of Israel chose to live as if they were in total anarchy. To live as if in a way that didn't observe any authority. To live in a way that didn't observe, uh, observe any guiding principles. I'd like to say it another way. God had made light to be separate from darkness. God had made his children to live in the light. And God's children were thankful for God 
saving them from the darkness and keeping them in the light, but still chose to actively run away from the light to pursue their own joy, their own pleasures in the darkness. Where are you actively running away from the light? Where are you actively running away from the light? Let me get specific. Placing an opinion or a figure, a public figure that's not Jesus. Placing an opinion or a public figure as the guiding principle of your life is running away from the light. Not breaking off the relationship that you know is taking you away from the path God had you on just before you met them is running away from the light. Sacrificing time with your family and the community God has called you to serve to chase after financial means is running away from the light. Ignoring the discipline it takes to give your heart fully to Jesus and participating in the things that don't actually grow your character is running away from the light. Fighting a worldly enemy back with the same ungodly weapons they're directing towards you is running away from the light. Where are you running away from the light? Is plain enough? Okay. Okay. In chapters one and two of Judges, when you when you when you read the stories, you'll you'll understand that God tells Israel to keep on taking land. And that's not a that's not a, a, a that's not a command of war. That's a blessing. Keep on taking land. I know you're happy with the land, and, 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 but I also know that you know that I've got more to give. So, so keep on taking the land. What land do I want you to take? I want you to take the land where, where the Canaanites are. See, the Canaanites, they're not following this path. So they could stand to lose some of their land. I want you to go in, and I want you to take the land from the Canaanites. And you know what happens? Israel gets to the land of Canaanites, and they decide, "Ah, that sounds hard. That sounds difficult. They're kind of intimidating. I don't really want to fight them. I don't really want to walk up to my enemy and say, no, no, you can't stay here anymore. God has declared this land, and so you have to leave. I don't want to say that. I don't want to look dead in the eyes of the things that's holding me back from the blessings of my Lord and tell it to move by the power that he has given me. So instead, what do they do? They settle amongst the Canaanites. They try to find that happy medium. Y'all getting what I'm saying, right? They try to find this happy medium where, where I can take the blessing of my Lord, but also not drive out the things that need to go, right? I can try to live into the purpose and the calling that God has for my life, but also not tell the sinful ideologies to vacate the premise. When it says everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it is speaking specifically to this behavior of I can try to have both. I can try to have 
these principles and these ideas of the light, but then settle amongst the things that are oppressing me and holding me back. But do you know what happened to the Canaanites in chapters 1 and 2, or sorry, to the Israelites in chapters 1 and 2, when instead of driving out the Canaanites, they decided to live amongst the Canaanites? Do you know what happened to them? They ended up looking more like the Canaanites than the Israelites. You know what happens when you don't drive out the thing that God is telling you to drive out in order to receive the blessing that God is trying to be giving you for a really long time? You end up looking like the very thing you're supposed to drive out. And this cycle through the book of Judges is over and over and over. When you read chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, so on and so forth, what happens? Over a 450-year period, longer than we've even been a nation, for a 450-year people period, the people of Israel would get themselves in sticky situations. They would call out to God to save us. Help us, God. Show me the way, O Lord. And God would be faithful to raise up a judge from the midst of some scandal to overcome the enemy Israel was facing. And then just as soon as peace was restored, just as soon as all was right again, they would do the same dang thing again I mean it's silly but I'm talking about you too and and what happens when you get to chapter 10 and I'm just using that as a reference where it's like most explicit is you see a leader on behalf of God carry out or attempt to carry out actions that he believes God would want him to carry out that actually are the very things that God explicitly speaks against just a little bit earlier. In other words, the the Israelites repeat this cycle so often that they get so far removed from the light that they actually don't even remember what the character of their God is like in the first place. They don't even remember. They're legitimately doing things that they think are pleasing to God. When it's so far out of the character of who he is and who he made them to be. And eventually, it gets so ridiculous. It gets so far gone. They run so far away from the light by doing what's right in their own eyes that when you turn a couple books later to 1 Samuel, they're begging God to give them a king like all other nations. Instead of begging God for deliverance, they're begging God to make them like all the other corrupt people. How messed up do you have to be? How far away from the light do you have to be? How jacked up do your priorities have to be to get to a point where you're looking at other corrupt nations and other corrupt leaders as the guiding principle for your life that God has blessed you with? Get the heck out. And the consequence, the 
the consequence for these actions is they end up looking a lot more like the people and the nations they were meant to be set apart from than they do the people of God they were designed to be. In other words, if you run away from the light consistently enough, eventually you will begin to look like the darkness you're trying to escape. And now I know what you're thinking. I know what every single, there's no way you are not thinking this at this point. And I just want to speak to that real quick. The answer is yes. You're right. This is the exact plot of Mean Girls. You're right. Where the new girl devises a plot to take down the mean girls from the inside. She says, I'm going to become like the mean girls so I can take down the mean girls. But as the new girl becomes the mean girl, what happens? She just becomes just another mean girl. The more time she spends with the mean girls... The more she becomes a mean girl, the more we run away from the light and search for joy elsewhere, the more and more we will begin to sink into and be consumed by darkness. Now you might be wondering, how do I get out? How do I stop? Yep, that's where I'm going. How do I stop the cycle? Right, Because I feel that. I feel that, Pastor. I feel that. I recognize that. You don't need to talk to me no more. You've made it plain enough, right? I, that, you're talking about me. I am an Israelite, right? I'm not talking about the barbershop conversation. We're not going there today, right? I'm not, we're not going there today. I'm talking about I, I, I can see myself in those shoes where I have looked for my joy elsewhere. I have looked for my guidance elsewhere. I have taken my cues from the cultural figures around me on Twitter and otherwise, more than I have taken my cues from the difficult and complex relationship I find in the scriptures. I understand that. And I understand that I have this cycle of getting on this path, right? I, I, I tend to unravel fast, right? I tend to, I tend to spiral quickly. Where, where, where one minute I'm thanking God that I'm in the light, but then in the very next moment I find myself in this deep, deep, deep darkness, right? I know, I know the feeling. And I know that in my darkness I'll eventually cry out to God for help and eventually he'll send me a buoy and then, and then maybe I'll take it or maybe I won't. And even if I do, I'll find myself, we'll be right back here again next week, Right? I'll be back next Sunday looking for the glimmer of hope all over again. How do I stop the cycle? What do I do when I've gone, when I've run away too far? This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can read it in, chapter, in Luke chapter 15. I'm not going to put it up there. I'm just going to tell you about it. Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a parable. A parable, he tells a story. He says, this is what it's like. Storytelling Jesus, one of my favorite forms of Jesus. He says, this is what it's like. It's like a father, a landowner, who has two sons. And one of his sons decides, father, I don't want to wait for you to be dead. 
I don't want to wait for this life to pass. I don't want to wait for the timing that you feel is right. I want to go ahead and get my inheritance now. And he says to his father, I demand my inheritance now. And his father, loving his son, divides up the property and the inheritance that he had. And he gives his youngest son his share. And then that younger son, just like we knew he would, just like we've done time and time again, takes what he, believe is right, what he believes is rightfully his, and he runs away. And as he runs away, away from the light of his father's house, deep into the darkness, the text tells us he squanders his inheritance. He lives, I love this, this is, the Bible says this, right? You can, you can double check me, it's in Luke 15. The Bible says he lives recklessly. Dude was reckless with his money, with his inheritance. And then real life hit. He's out here living it up, living it up, living his best life. And then a famine hits. And he realizes he actually has nothing. And he finds himself in the middle of the pandemic. Sorry, I meant in the middle of a famine. With a whole lot less than he thought he actually had. Right? And he's desperately trying to find a way to get what he thought was joy back. And so he goes to work. And he tries to work himself back. But that doesn't quite get him enough of what he needs, right? No stimulus bails him out. And he's desperately trying to figure out how he can get back on his feet. And the more and more he tries to do it himself, the deeper and deeper he goes. So far as to at one point in Luke chapter 15, he finds himself eating with the pigs out of their trough. He suffers in poverty. And then one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, and oh, I wish I had the time to give it to you all this morning, but I don't. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is it says, and then he came to himself. He came to himself. He had this Kairos moment, right? I'm not talking about the moment that you have of like, oh, it's 12-12 on December. No, no, no. I'm talking about this like spiritual moment. I'm talking about that moment where like time stands still and nothing else matters, right? I'm talking about that moment where you're so overwhelmed by where you found yourself, but you can feel the very presence of God with you. I'm talking about that moment where life stands still, where your, your regular Chronos time gets, gets interrupted and you know from this moment forward life will never be the same again. He came to himself and realized the best thing for me is to return to my father's house because even the servants, even the lowliest of the low live in that house with full bellies and here I am starving and hungry amongst the pigs. He came to himself. And realized, though I've blown it, though I'm surrounded in darkness, though I've tried and tried and I can't do it alone, though my pride has been killed, though I've been reckless, though I've lost it all, the best place for me is to return to my father's house. 
And he goes back with a heart and with a posture that's humble and willing to work his way back. You ever been so down? You ever been so desperate that you're like, look, I'll be, I'll do anything to get back to where I was. It's okay. Treat me as a servant. Treat me as a servant. Treat me as the lowliest of the low. I'll, I'll earn my way back. But Luke chapter 15, the story that Jesus is telling, Jesus is like, but this is what it's actually like. While he was a long way off, while he wasn't even close to his father's house, while he hadn't even close to paid his daddy back, while he wasn't even close to working his way back into right standing with his father, while he was still way out there, while he was still just a silhouette on the horizon, we don't even know if he had hit the driveway yet, while he was still a long way off, the father leapt from the balcony and ran to his son. It says the father felt compassion. He ran to him. He embraced him. And he kissed him. And he's like, Dad, I promise I'm going to do whatever I can. And, I'm gonna, and, I, and it'll never be the same again. And, I, and I pro- I'll work my way back, Dad. I'll be a servant. I'll be the. And he's like, boy, if you don't stop. Come on. Because tonight. Oh, boy, tonight we're having a party because my son came home, because my son is back, because my family is whole, because you came to yourself, because you realized that the best place for you is right here in the father's house. Celebration. Joy. The father didn't hold the son's decisions against the son. The father didn't tell his son, you're too far gone. The father didn't greet his son like I would have greeted my son with an I told you so. Stupid boy. (laughs) But he greeted his son with joy and compassion. The father ran to his runaway son. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. If you hear nothing else that I say all day long, I want you to hear what I'm about to say right now. Jesus accepts the runaway. Jesus accepts the runaway. It doesn't matter how long you've been gone. It doesn't matter what you've seen while you was out there. We got a few guesses. It doesn't matter what you did while you were gone. It doesn't matter how much money you lost while you were gone. It doesn't matter the things that you tried to get back as long as at some point you recognize the Spirit of God interrupting yourself to try to get you to come to yourself and you come home. Jesus accepts the runaway. Part of the purpose of what we get to observe in this season is how Jesus not only observes the runaway, but he came to get the runaway. He looked at a world and said, you know what? About 40 some books later and a whole lot of chapters and words written down, I'm about tired of waiting on my son to get here. I'm about sick and starting to lose just a little bit of hope. That you're ever going to come to yourself. 
So I ain't going to take no chances. From the moment I see you turn around just a little bit, from the moment that I see you as just this tiny little silhouette, I know my son. I'm looking for my son. From the moment that your heart turns just a little bit, let me go ahead and go get you and bring you the rest of the way. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants you to come to your senses. Jesus is sitting on the balcony waiting to see your heart turn back towards the light. And Jesus is going to go get you to bring you the rest of the way to not put you in a doghouse, but to receive you with joy and compassion. If you ain't never received that message in your life, I encourage you, don't you dare leave these these doors without finding out what it's all about. Jesus wants you home. There's so many things we're doing in life where we are actively running away from the light. The light is harsh. The light exposes us, right? But the light also puts you where, you're, where you belong. The light also empowers you to step with certainty, to be confident in the direction that you're going. That's what the light does. And what it means for the church to be the body of Christ in this season, this season, while we acknowledge and celebrate that Jesus came for the runaway, but while we wait for him to come once and for all, what it means for the church to be the body of Christ in this time of waiting is for the church to be the people who receive the runaway with joy and compassion. For the church to be the people that as soon as our neighbor shows just a little silhouette on the horizon, as soon as our family member shows that maybe their heart is turning just a little bit, as soon as there is that glimmer of hope of our friend or our spouse looking for the light, we go to the runaway. And we don't hold over the head, their heads the mistake that they made on the path. We don't tell them all the ways that culture has infiltrated their heart and they're living it wrong. We don't tell them the ways that they're bullheaded, hard-headed, ignorant, and foolish. It's our job as the church to receive them with joy and compassion and to shut our mouths while we celebrate and let the Spirit convict. Let the Spirit transform hearts. Let the Spirit of God do the work. Receive people with joy and compassion. That's the type of church that we are. That's the type of church we ought to be. That's what makes this place family. I know, I know there are difficult life circumstances that cause us to run away from the light because we perceive it as harsh. But the invitation that we have this morning And every day we wake up is to go home because Jesus receives the runaway 
so should we.